Hello, boys and girls. This is Rish out here. And you are listening <clears throat> to the podcast that dares not speak its name. <laughs> the unfortunately titled podcast that dares not speak its name. Ah, you've caught me in a rare good mood. I'm just driving down from the cabin. I began recording as soon as I started the engine, but I don't imagine this will be a very long episode. You never know, (laughs) though. Let's see. Not too long ago, I was asked by the podcast Tales to Terrify if I would produce, if I would perform a story called Man-Sized in Marble. But the story that they had attached was not that one. So I went ahead and recorded the story that they attached, but sent them an email and said, hey, was this the right story? And it turned out that it was Man-Sized in Marble by E. Nesbitt that they had wanted me to perform. From what little I could glean from research, Man Size in Marble is Edith Nesbitt's most famous story. And I had never heard of it. In fact, a year ago, a year and a couple months ago, I had never heard of E. Nesbitt at all. But Man Size in Marble was excellent. And in, in recording it, I discovered that it was from a collection in 1893 called Grim Tales. And um, since it's in the public domain, I got a PDF of Grim Tales and I saved it. And I had it when I came to the cabin yesterday. And as has become my tradition, every time I come to the cabin, I decided to record a story for this podcast, and uh, the one that I recorded was not what you were about to hear. The one that I recorded was very, very short, like nine minutes, and very, very slight. I thought, well, yeah, that's not one that I'm going to make an episode of. But the next story after that in the collection was called From the Dead. And that is the story you were about to hear. I will try not to sing out of key. I will try not to oversell this story. But I will say, I hope that your listening of it is as enjoyable as my reading of it was. Edith Nesbitt was an English writer and poet who published books for children as E. Nesbitt and wrote or or collaborated on more than 60 such books. Among her best-known books are The Story of the Treasure Seekers, The Railway Children, and The Story of the Amulet. Nesbitt has been cited as the creator of modern children's fantasy, which would now be classed as contemporary fantasy. She also wrote for adults, including 11 novels, short stories, and four collections of horror stories. She died in 1924.
from the dead by E. Nesbitt. One. But true or not, your brother is a scoundrel. No man, no decent man tells such things. He did not tell me. How dare you suppose it? I found the letter in his desk, and she being my friend and you being her lover, I never thought there could be any harm in my reading her letter to my brother. Give me back the letter. I was a fool to tell you. Ida Helmont held out her hand for the letter. Not yet, I said, and went to the window. The dull red of a London sunset burned on the paper. As I read in the quaint, dainty handwriting I knew so well and had kissed so often. Dear, I do, I do love you, but it's impossible. I must marry Arthur. My honour is engaged. If he would only set me free, but he never will. He loves me so foolishly, but as for me it is you I love, body, soul and spirit. There is no one in my heart but you. I think of you all day and dream of you all night. And we must part. That is the way of the world. Goodbye. Yours, 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 Elvira. I had seen the handwriting, indeed often enough, but the passion written there was new to me. That I had not seen. I turned from the window wearily. My sitting-room looked strange to me. There were my books, my reading-lamp, my untasted dinner still on the table, as I had left it when I rose to dissemble my surprise at Ida Helmont's visit. Ida Helmont, who now sat in my easy chair looking at me quietly. Well, do you give me no thanks? You put a knife in my heart and then ask for thanks. Pardon me, she said, throwing up her chin. I have done nothing but show you the truth, for that one should expect no gratitude. May I ask, out of mere curiosity, what you intend to do? Your brother will tell you. She rose suddenly, pale to the lips. You will not tell my brother, she began, that you have read his private letters. Certainly not. She came towards me, her gold hair flaming in the sunset light. Why are you so angry with me? She said. Be reasonable. What else could I do? I don't know. Would it have been right not to tell you? I don't know. I only know that you've put the sun out and I haven't got used to the dark yet. Believe me she said, coming still nearer to me and laying her hands in the lightest touch on my shoulders. Believe me, she never loved you. There was a softness in her tone that irritated and stimulated me. I moved gently back and her hands fell by her sides. I beg your pardon, I said. I have behaved very badly. You are quite right to come and I am not ungrateful Will you post a letter for me? I sat down and wrote, I give you back your freedom, the only gift of mine that can please you now. Arthur. I held the sheet out to Miss Helmont, and 
When she had glanced at it, I sealed, stamped, and addressed it. Goodbye, I said then, and gave her the letter. As the door closed behind her, I sank into my chair, and I am not ashamed to say that I cried like a child or a fool over my lost plaything, the little dark-haired woman who loved someone else with body, soul, and spirit. I did not hear the door open or any foot on the floor, and therefore I started when a voice behind me said, Are you so very unhappy? Oh, Arthur, don't think I'm not sorry for you. I don't want anyone to be sorry for me, Miss Helmont, I said. She was silent a moment. Then, with a quick, sudden, gentle movement, she leaned down and kissed my forehead and I heard the door softly close. Then I knew that the beautiful Miss Helmont loved me. At first that thought only fleeted by, a light cloud against a grey sky, but the next day reason woke and said, Was Miss Helmont speaking the truth? Was it possible that... I determined to see Elvira, to know from her own lips whether by happy fortune this blow came, not from her, but from a woman in whom love might have killed honesty. I walked from Hampstead to Gower Street. As I trod its long length, I saw a figure in pink come out of one of the houses. It was Elvira. She walked in front of me to the corner of Store Street. There she met Oscar Helmont. They turned and met me face to face, and I saw all I needed to see. They loved each other. Ida Helmont had spoken the truth. I bowed and passed on. Before six months were gone, they were married, and before a year was over, I had married Ida Helmont. What did it, I don't know. Whether it was remorse for having, even for half a day, dreamed that she could be so base as to forge a lie to gain a lover, or whether it was her beauty or the sweet flattery of the preference of a woman who had half her acquaintances at her feet, I don't know. Anyhow, my thoughts turned to her as to their natural home. My heart, too, took that road. And before very long, I loved her as I had never loved Elvira. Let no one doubt that I loved her, as I shall never love again, please, God. There was never any one like her. She was brave and beautiful, witty and wise, and beyond all measure, adorable. She was the only woman in the world. There was a frankness, a largeness of heart about her that made all other women seem small and contemptible. She loved me, and I worshipped her. I married her and stayed with her for three golden weeks, and then I left her. Why? Because she told me the truth. It was one night, late. We had sat all the evening in the veranda of our seaside lodging, watching the moonlight on the water and listening to the soft sound of the sea on the sand. I've never been so happy. I never shall be happy any more, I hope. Heart's heart, she said, 
leaning her gold head against my shoulder. How much do you love me? How much? Yes, how much? I want to know what place it is I hold in your heart. Am I more to you than anyone else? <laughs> my love. More than yourself. More than my life. I believe you, she said. Then she drew a long breath and took my hands in hers. It can make no difference. Nothing in heaven or earth can come between us now. Nothing, I said. But, sweet, my wife, what is it? For she was deathly pale. I must tell you, she said. I cannot hide anything from you, because I am yours, body, soul, and spirit. The phrase was an echo that stung me. The moonlight shone on her gold hair, her warm, soft, gold hair, and on her pale face. Arthur, she said, you remember my coming to you at Hampstead with that letter? But yes, my sweet, <laughs> and I remember how you... Arthur, she spoke fast and low. Arthur, that letter was a forgery. She never wrote it. I... She stopped, for I had risen and flung her hands from me, and I stood looking at her. God help me. I thought it was anger at the lie I felt. I know now it was only wounded vanity that smarted in me, that I should have been tricked, that I should have been deceived, that I should have been led on to make a fool of myself, that I should have married the woman who had befooled me. At that moment, she was no longer the wife I adored. She was only a woman who had forged a letter and tricked me into marrying her. I spoke. I denounced her. I said I would never speak to her again. I felt it was rather creditable in me to be so angry. I said I would have no more to do with a liar and a forger. I do not know whether I expected her to creep to my knees and implore forgiveness, I think I had some vague idea that I could, by and by, consent with dignity to forgive and forget. I did not mean what I said. No, no, I, I did not mean a word of it. While I was saying it, I was longing for her to weep and fall at my feet, that I might raise her and hold her in my arms again. But she did not fall at my feet. She stood quietly, looking at me. Arthur, she said, as I paused for breath. Let me explain. She... I... There is nothing to explain, I said hotly, still with that foolish sense of there being something rather noble in my indignation, as one feels when one calls oneself a miserable sinner. You are a liar and a forger, and that is enough for me. I will never speak to you again. You have wrecked my life. Do you mean that? She said, interrupting me, and leaning forward to look at me. Tears lay on her cheeks, but she was not crying now. I hesitated. I longed to take her in my arms and say, Lay your head here, my darling, and cry here and know how I love you. But instead, I kept silence. Do you mean it? she persisted. Then she put her hand on my arm. I longed to clasp it and draw her to me. Instead, I shook it off and said, Mean it? Yes, of course I mean it. 
Don't touch me, please. You have ruined my life. She turned away without a word, went into our room and shut the door. I longed to follow her, to tell her that if there was anything to forgive, I forgave it. Instead, I went out on the beach and walked away under the cliffs. The moonlight and the solitude, however, presently brought me to a better mind. Whatever she had done had been done for love of me. I knew that. I would go home and tell her so, tell her that whatever she had done, she was my dearest life, my heart's one treasure. True, my ideal of her was shattered, but even if she was, what was the whole world of women compared to her? I hurried back, but in my resentment and evil temper I had walked far, and the way back was very long. I had been parted from her for three hours by the time I opened the door of the little house where we lodged. The house was dark and very still. I slipped off my shoes and crept up the narrow stairs and opened the door of our room quite softly. Perhaps she would have cried herself to sleep, and I would lean over and waken her with my kisses and beg her to forgive me. Yes, it had come to that now. I went into the room. I went towards the bed. She was not there. She was not in the room, as one glance showed me. She was not in the house, as I knew in two minutes. When I had wasted a priceless hour in searching the town for her, I found a note on the dressing table. Goodbye. Make the best of what is left of your life. I will spoil it no more. She was gone utterly gone. I rushed to town by the earliest morning train, only to find that her people knew nothing of her. Advertisement failed. Only a tramp said he had met a white lady on the cliff, and a fisherman brought me a handkerchief, marked with her name, that he had found on the beach. I searched the country far and wide, but I had to go back to London at last, and the months went by. I won't say much about those months, because even the memory of that suffering turns me faint and sick at heart. The police and detectives and the press failed me utterly. Her friends could not help me, and were, moreover, wildly indignant with me, especially her brother, now living very happily with my first love. I don't know how I got through those long weeks and months. I tried to write. I tried to read. I tried to live the life of a reasonable human being. But it was impossible. I could not endure the companionship of my kind. Day and night I almost saw her face, almost heard her voice. I took long walks in the country, and her figure was always just round the next turn of the road, in the next glade of the wood. But I never quite saw her, never quite heard her. I believe I was not altogether sane at that time. At last, one morning as I was setting out for one of those long walks that had no goal but weariness, I met a telegraph boy and took the red envelope from his hand. On the pink paper inside was written, Come to me at once. I am dying. You must come. Ida.
Appenshaw Farm, Mellor, Derbyshire. There was a train at twelve to Marple, the nearest station. I took it. I tell you there were... I tell you there are some things that cannot be written about. My life for those long months was one of them. That journey was another. What had her life been for those months? That question troubled me, as one is troubled in every nerve at the sight of a surgical operation or a wound inflicted on a being dear to one. But the overmastering sensation was joy, intense, unspeakable joy. She was alive. I should see her again. I took out the telegram and looked at it. I am dying. I simply did not believe it. She could not die till she had seen me. And if she had lived all those months without me, she could live now, when I was with her again, when she knew of the hell I had endured apart from her and the heaven of our meeting. She must live. I would not let her die. There was a long drive over bleak hills, dark, jolting, infinitely wearisome. At last we stopped before a long, low building where one or two lights gleamed faintly. I sprang out. The door opened. A blaze of light made me blink and draw back. A woman was standing in the doorway. Art thee Arthur Marsh, she said. Yes. Then thou too late, she's dead. I went into the house, walked to the fire, and held out my hands to it mechanically, for, though the night was May, I was cold to the bone. There were some folks standing round the fire, and lights flickering. Then an old woman came forward with the northern instinct of hospitality. Thou'rt tired, she said, and mazed like. Have a supper tea. I burst out laughing. It was too funny. I had travelled two hundred miles to see her, and she was dead, and they offered me tea. They drew back from me as if I had been a wild beast, but I could not stop laughing. Then a hand was laid on my shoulder, and someone led me into a dark room, lighted a lamp, set me in a chair, and sat down opposite me. It was a bare parlour, coldly furnished with rush chairs and much polished tables and presses. I caught my breath and grew suddenly grave and looked at the woman who sat opposite me. I was Miss Ida's nurse, said she, and she told me to send for you. Who are you? Her husband. The woman looked at me with hard eyes, where intense surprise struggled with resentment. Then, may God forgive you, she said. What you've done, I don't know, but it'll be hard work forgiving you, even for him. Tell me, I said. My wife... Tell you? The bitter contempt in the woman's tone did not hurt me. For what? What was it to the self-contempt that had gnawed my heart all these months? Tell you. Yes, I'll tell you. 
Your wife was that ashamed of you. She never so much as told me she was married. She let me think anything I pleased sooner than that. She just come here and she said, Nurse, take care of me, for I am in mortal trouble. And don't let them know where I am, says she. And me being well married to an honest man and well to do here, I was able to do it by the blessing. Why, didn't you send for me before? It was a cry of anguish wrung from me. I never sent for you. It was her doing. How to think as God Almighty made men able to measure out such like pecks at trouble for us women folk. Young man, I don't know what you did to her to make her leave you, but it must have been something cruel, for she loved the ground you walked on. She used to sit day after day a looking at your picture and talking to it and kissing of it when she thought I wasn't taking no notice. And crying till she made me cry too. She used to cry all night most. And one day, when I tells her to pray to God to help her through her troubles, she outs with your putty face on the card she does, and says she, with her poor little smile, That's my God, nursey, she says. Don't, I said feebly, putting out my hands to keep off the torture. Not, not any more. Not now. Don't, she repeated. She had risen and was walking up and down the room with clasped hands. Don't indeed. No, I won't, but I shan't forget you. I tell you, I've had you in my prayers time and again, when I thought you'd made a light of love of my darling. I shan't drop you out of them now. I know she was your own wedded wife as you chucked her away when you're tired of her and left her to eat her heart out with longing for you. Oh, I pray to God above us to pay you scot and lot for all you'd done to her. You killed my pretty. The price will be required of you, young man, even to the uttermost farthing. Oh, God in heaven, make him suffer, make him feel it. She stamped her foot as she passed me. I stood quite still. I bit my lip till I tasted the blood hot and salt on my tongue. She was nothing to you, cried the woman, walking faster up and down between the rush chairs and the table. Any fool can see that with half an eye. You didn't love her and you don't feel nothing now, but some day you'll care for someone. And then you shall know what she felt, if there's any justice in heaven. I too rose walked across the room and leaned against the wall. I heard her words without understanding them. Can't you feel nothing? Are you made of stone? Come and look at her lying there so quiet. She don't fret after the likes of you no more now. She won't sit no more a-looking out her window and saying nothing, only dropping her tears one by one slow, slow on her lap. Come and see her, come and see what you've done to my pretty. And then... You can go. Nobody wants you here. She don't want you now. But perhaps you'd like to see her safe underground first. I'd be bound you'll put a big slab on her to make sure she don't rise again. I turned on her. Her thin face was white with grief and impotent rage. Her claw-like hands were clenched. Woman, I said, have mercy. She paused and looked at me. Eh? she said. 
have mercy, I said again. Mercy? You should have thought of that before. You hadn't no mercy on her. She loved you. She died loving you. And if I wasn't a Christian woman, I'd kill you for it, like the rat you are. That I would, though I had to swing for it afterwards. I caught the woman's hands and held them fast in spite of her resistance. Don't you understand? I said savagely. We loved each other. She died loving me. I have to live loving her. And it's her you pity. I tell you, it was all a mistake. A stupid, stupid mistake. Take me to her and for pity's sake, let me be left alone with her. She hesitated, then said in a voice only a shade less hard. Well, come along then. We moved towards the door. As she opened it, a faint, weak cry fell on my ear. My heart stood still. What's that? I asked, stopping on the threshold. Your child, she said shortly. That too. Oh, my love, oh, my poor love. All these long months. She always said she'd send for you when she got over her trouble. The woman said as we climbed the stairs. I'd like him to see his little baby, nurse. She says, our little baby. It'll be all right when the baby's born, she says. I know he'll come to me then, you'll see. And I never said nothing, not thinking you'd come if she was your leavings and not dreaming as you could be her husband and could stay away from her an hour, her being as she was. Hush! She drew a key from her pocket and fitted it to the lock. She opened the door and I followed her in. It was a large, dark room full of old-fashioned furniture. There were wax candles in brass candlesticks and a smell of lavender. The big four-post bed was covered with white. My lamb, my poor pretty lamb, said the woman, beginning to cry for the first time as she drew back the sheet. Don't she look beautiful? I stood by the bedside. I looked down on my wife's face. Just so I had seen it lie on the pillow beside me in the early morning when the wind and the dawn came up from beyond the sea. She did not look like one dead. Her lips were still red and it seemed to me that a tinge of colour lay on her cheek. It seemed to me too that if I kissed her she would wake and put her slight hand on my neck and lay her cheek against mine and that we should tell each other everything and weep together and understand and be comforted. So I stooped and laid my lips to hers as the old nurse stole from the room. But the red lips were like marble, and she did not wake. She will not wake now, ever any more. I tell you again, there are some things that cannot be written. Three. I lay that night in a big room filled with heavy, dark furniture, in a great four-poster hung with heavy, dark curtains, a bed the counterpart of that other bed from whose side they had dragged me at last. 
They fed me, I believe, and the old nurse was kind to me. I think she saw now that it is not the dead who are to be pitied most. I lay at last in the big roomy bed and heard the household noises grow fewer and die out, the little wail of my child sounding latest. They had brought the child to me and I had held it in my arms and bowed my head over its tiny face and frail fingers. I did not love it then. I told myself it had cost me her life. But my heart told me that it was I who had done that. The tall clock at the stairhead sounded the hours. Eleven, twelve, one. And still I could not sleep. The room was dark and very still. I had not been able to look at my life quietly. I had been full of the intoxication of grief, a real drunkenness, more merciful than the calm that comes after. Now I lay still as the dead woman in the next room and looked at what was left of my life. I lay still and thought and thought and thought. And in those hours I tasted the bitterness of death. It must have been about two that I first became aware of a slight sound that was not the ticking of the clock. I say I first became aware, and yet I knew perfectly that I had heard that sound more than once before, and had yet determined not to hear it, because it came from the next room, the room where the corpse lay. And I did not wish to hear that sound, because I knew it meant that I was nervous, miserably nervous, a coward and a brute. It meant that I, having killed my wife as surely as though I had put a knife in her breast, had now sunk so low as to be afraid of her dead body, the dead body that lay in the room next to mine. The heads of the beds were placed against the same wall, and from that wall I had fancied I heard slight, slight, almost inaudible sounds. So when I say that I became aware of them, I mean that I at last heard a sound so distinct as to leave no room for doubt or question. It brought me to a sitting position in the bed, and the drops of sweat gathered heavily on my forehead and fell on my cold hands as I held my breath and listened. I don't know how long I sat there. There was no further sound. And at last my tense muscles relaxed, and I fell back on the pillow. Fool, I said to myself, dead or alive is she not, your darling, your heart's heart? Would you not go near to die of joy if she came to you? Pray God to let her spirit come back and tell you she forgives you. I wish she would come, myself answered in words, while every fibre of my body and mind shrank and quivered in denial. I struck a match lighted a candle, and breathed more freely as I looked at the polished furniture, the commonplace details of an ordinary room. Then I thought of her, lying alone, so near me, so quiet under the white sheet. She was dead. She would not wake or move. But suppose she did move. Suppose she turned back the sheet and got up and walked across the floor and turned the door-handle. As I thought it, I heard, plainly, unmistakably heard, 
the door of the chamber of death open slowly. I heard slow steps in the passage, slow, heavy steps. I heard the touch of hands on my door outside, uncertain hands that felt for the latch. Sick with terror, I lay clenching the sheet in my hands. I knew well enough what would come in when that door opened, that door on which my eyes were fixed. I dreaded to look, yet I dared not turn away my eyes. The door opened slowly, 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 and the figure of my dead wife came in. It came straight towards the bed, and stood at the bedfoot in its white grave clothes, with the white bandage under its chin. There was a scent of lavender. Its eyes were wide open, and looked at me with love unspeakable. I could have shrieked aloud. My wife spoke. It was the same dear voice that I had loved so to hear, but it was very weak and faint now and now I trembled as I listened. You aren't afraid of me, darling, are you, though I am dead? I heard all you said to me when you came, but I couldn't answer. But now I've come back from the dead to tell you. I wasn't really so bad as you thought me. Elvira had told me that she loved Oscar. I only wrote the letter to make it easier for you. I was too proud to tell you when you were so angry, but I am not proud any more now. You love me again now, won't you, now I'm dead? One always forgives dead people. The poor ghost's voice was hollow and faint. Abject terror paralyzed me. I could answer nothing. Say you forgive me. The thin, monotonous voice went on. Say you love me again. I had to speak. Coward as I was, I did manage to stammer. Yes, I love you. I've always loved you. God help me. The sound of my own voice reassured me, and I ended more firmly than I began. The figure by the bed swayed a little unsteadily. I suppose, she said wearily, you would be afraid now I am dead if I came round to you and kissed you. She made a movement as though she would have come to me. Then I did shriek aloud again and again and covered my face with the sheet and wound it round my head and body and held it with all my force. There was a moment's silence. Then I heard my door close, and then a sound of feet and of voices, and I heard something heavy fall. I disentangled my head from the sheet. My room was empty. Then reason came back to me. I leaped from the bed. Ida, my darling, come back. I'm not afraid. I love you. Come back. Come back. I sprang to my door and flung it open. Someone was bringing a light along the passage. On the floor, outside the door of the death chamber, was a huddled heap. The corpse 
in its grave clothes. Dead. 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 She is buried in Melor churchyard, and there is no stone over her. Now, whether it was catalepsy, as the doctors said, or whether my love came back even from the dead to me who loved her, I shall never know. But this I do know, that if I had held out my arms to her as she stood at my bedfoot, if I had said, yes, even from the grave, my darling, from hell itself, come back, come back to me, if I had had room in my coward's heart for anything but the unreasoning terror that killed love in that hour, I should not now be here alone. I shrank from her. I feared her. I would not take her to my heart. And now she will not come to me any more. Why do I go on living? You see, there is the child. It is four years old now, and it has never spoken and never smiled. The end. Well, there you go, from the dead. And as I said right before playing the recording, I didn't want to oversell it. I remember the very first time that I saw Bride of Frankenstein. I was working for Fox, the Fox studio. Well, I was working for the FX network, but it was on the Fox lot, and they had a library where you could go and check out Fox movies for free. You just had to have an ID. And uh, I got Frankenstein and I got The Bride of Frankenstein. And I was blown away by how good Bride of Frankenstein was. I was just really shocked. And then a couple years later, it came out on DVD and I bought it and uh, I invited my buddy Matthew over to watch it with me. And I talked it up before the movie began. I, I talked it up too much. And I could see that he was disappointed. I suppose I had built it up as the greatest horror movie ever made kind of thing. And I have heard people say that. Anyhow, I didn't want to do that with this one. But now that it's done, I have got to say, of all of the stories that I have ever read sight unseen, this was the most natural, easiest it just flowed off my tongue. The, I, you know, inevitably I make mistakes and I have to edit them out. But I wouldn't be surprised if there were only four or five mistakes in the whole reading. And it's a long story. The, the collection was published in 1893. I'm not sure when the story itself was. But let's say that it was from around then. I could not have told you that that it's more than a century old. It felt a little bit old-fashioned, sure, but it didn't feel antiquated. It didn't feel super dated and irrelevant in the way that lots of things from the 19th century feel. Heck, there are things from the 1950s that feel more dated than this. And as you've heard before, 
whenever I'm doing one of these stories that is from somebody else, I have to decide beforehand if I'm going to record it, narrate it in my own voice, if I'm going to narrate it in an old person's voice, if I'm going to narrate it with an accent. And this time, because it was first person, I jumped in with both feet and decided to do it with an accent. And I hope that that was the right decision. But, boy, I didn't feel like I was tripping over the accent much at all on this. It was just easy, as though it were my native dialect. And then that emotional bit at the end of the story was an emotional bit. As I said when I did Grandma by Stephen King a couple months ago, uh, and if that episode no longer exists, sorry, I was surprised by how emotional I became in performing that story. Uh, it was very scary, and it, it was very heartbreaking. And this one was heartbreaking as well. And um, there you go. <laughs> Again, I hope that you enjoyed it half as much as I enjoyed recording it. What was it that Big used to always say? If you've enjoyed it half as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you, then we've enjoyed it twice as much as you. Good night. Something like that. He, he, he would say it often, and I would sometimes cut it out of episodes because he had just said that like the episode before. But most of the time I left it in because I found it really charming. Big is a charming dude. I don't have to tell you that. You guys know. I wish I were as charming a guy as he is. To try harder. But hopefully you can appreciate somebody that tries hard. Want to buy some crack? This story resonated with me. Woo! Very close to hitting that deer just then. Uh... Don't ever stay out this late. See, the problem is the clouds came in and it started raining all of a sudden, even though we had an hour of daylight left. But once the rain came, darkness came with it. And so I scooped up things, maybe not as fast as I could have, but I scooped up things pretty fast. And uh, I've no doubt that before this recording is done, you'll start to hear the sound of the rain. In the sky, in the distance, I can see ribbons of lightning, and it appears that I'm driving toward the storm rather than away from it. So it's inevitable, kids. I loved this story. I thought it was great. I, I, I loved it more than the other E. Nesbitt stories that I've done. And I, yeah, I want to seek them all out. I want to find other collections and stuff. Dude, if these stories are in the public domain, then anybody can record them and put them out. Oh, so I just barely published my book, Hatchling, in audio on Audible. And the very first thing that it asks is, where do you have the rights to this book? And, and you know, the options are like in the US, in North America, in, you know, et cetera, et cetera, worldwide. But one of the options is uh, the book is in the public domain. And I wonder if I clicked on that, if, if, if I got to a handful of E. Nesbitt stories together and put out a collection of my readings of her stories, 
and I clicked that they were in the public domain, could I still make money from them? If you know, please let me know. My guess is yes, because Audible sure as hell is going to make money from it. What, what would be really interesting is to sit down and write an introduction to the five, six, seven, eight stories that I'm presenting. And so it feels a little bit more personal besides just my reading of the stories. But again, like I said, let me know if that is something that would be worth doing. After all, I've already got, what, five of her stories recorded. And um, uh, let me know if, if that would be interesting to you. So here comes the rain. So um, about this time in 2019, I met a girl and I thought that she was pretty cool. And eventually, um, <laughs> my feelings started spiraling out of control. It was rough. It, it was shocking because I was just blown over by this. It was something that a teenager feels. And believe me, I had felt this as a teenager, but as a middle-aged man, I had not. And I was just, maybe not devastated by it. What is a better word? Well, I found it remarkable. And there were a couple of moments in From the Dead where I felt that coming back, where I remembered how that felt, where it rang true. One thing that's interesting about Nesbitt is that she was a female writer that did not disclose that, did not um, advertise that she was a female writer. And a lot of times her stories have a male protagonist or their first person stories from a male point of view. And there are references to how unreasonable illogical and frustrating women can be that uh, that belie the fact that the author is a woman. I haven't written a lot of stuff in first person female. And when I do, I always feel weird about it because I feel like I shouldn't be recording it because it, it, it should be performed by a woman, by a female narrator, right? Doesn't it sound strange to hear, ever since I was a girl up at Oxford, ever since I was a girl up at Oxford, I had been told by men that I could never accomplish what they could accomplish, you know, something like that. Maybe that sounds totally natural to you. If so, okay. Thank you. Please let me know. Because I have a couple of stories, one in particular, that I would like to put out there. And I would like to run it on my show, but I am afraid to record it myself. I, I want to get a female narrator to do it for me. Anyhow, I said that the story wasn't dated. And maybe, maybe the fact that he through such a fit about her forging the letter is a dated aspect to the story. It's not something that 
would be a deal breaker today. <laughs> Boy, this, this rain is really coming down. It's those droplets that are so big that they, they hurt when they hit. Maybe in the 21st century, it wouldn't be such a deal breaker if you found that out. But essentially, she won his heart through duplicity, through dishonesty. And, he, and his reaction, see, that is really interesting because it's a contradictory reaction. He wanted to hold her and say, you know, I, I understand and I forgive you, but the mores of the time insist that he treat her harshly. It, it sort of is necessary in that way so that we can get the outcome that we do in the story. I get that, and I forgive it for that. I would like to find out if this has ever been made into a film or a television episode. It seems likely, right? Ooh, here it comes. Visibility is going to get terrible. Sorry about the sound of the rain. I did stop recording when it got the loudest, when it was those great big drops that are the size of nickels. So just have to put up with it, just as you put up with all of my idiosyncrasies. We have all said things in the heat of the moment that we wish we could take back. This character's overreaction, I guess, is an extreme example of that because it destroys his life, it destroys his wife's life, and then whatever that child's deal is at the end. But it's easy for me to relate. There was that Annie Lennox song that went, how many times do I have to try to tell you that I'm sorry for the things I've done? I have been a horse's ass in the past, and when I'm writing about interpersonal relationships, I try to remember that. That sometimes people say things that they don't mean, or they say things that just jump into their heads without considering what the consequences might be. And uh, in Hatchling, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, both Rick and Talia, the two main characters in that, they snipe at each other. They, they say hurtful things without really considering the consequences, and I have found that in such cases, you may be able to get past that, but you never quite forget that the other person said that. I've had people say, I've had girls say stuff to me, I, I guys too, yeah, it's, it's interpersonal relationships we're talking about, not just romance, but I've had people say things that echo for decades in my head that I never forget. And that's too bad. But I, I totally believe that all of us have been there. There are people out there even less lucky in love than me. And then, of course, the other kind. She loved him enough that she came back from the dead for him. And once again, he blew it. 
And I feel like there's a lesson to be learned there. I don't feel like the main character is an evil man, but he's certainly foolish. And the nurse thinks that he's an extremely bad man. And who's to say whether she's right or wrong? Good people do bad things sometimes. There are good people out there that do terrible things. So, so two nights ago, I couldn't fall asleep, and so I decided to put on a Star Trek episode, and I watched City on the Edge of Forever, which is the most beloved Star Trek episode. Uh, which is the most widely acclaimed Star Trek episode. And, you know, to make a long story short, Harlan Ellison spent the rest of his life railing on that Star Trek episode, hating Gene Roddenberry, hating Gene Kuhn, hating Star Trek, hating life. And even now, if you hold up a seashell that you have thrown in a fire, you can hear him railing against Star Trek in hell. It's, it's remarkable. I suggest you try it. And the reason that he was so upset was that he had written this script and they had requested changes and he had made changes. And then it came time to make the episode and both Gene Kuhn and DC Fontana did revisions on the script, rewrites, quite extensive rewrites. And so when that episode aired, there were differences from what he had written and he felt betrayed. He felt incensed. He felt justifiable fury, righteous indignation. He felt basically what Harlan Ellison was born to feel. But, and I said to make a long story short, whoops, the biggest change of the script that he wrote to the, the version that got made into an episode was that there was a piece of crap crew member of the Enterprise who, who dealt futuristic drugs to the other crewmen. And he didn't care what befell the people that used these drugs. He was entirely selfish. He was entirely amoral. He was a bad person. And he murders another Enterprise crewman. And then he beams down to the planet and he jumps into this portal, which became known as the Guardian of Forever in the a a televised episode. He goes back to the 1930s and he changes the timeline so that Germany wins World War II and the future changes. The time that Kurt, Spock, McCoy, and Janice Rand come from has been changed to a much more despotic, militaristic, selfish world. And the only way to fix it is for Kirk and Spock to jump back in time and try and prevent what went wrong. And if you've seen the episode, you know that what went wrong is that there was a missionary named Edith Keeler who preached pacifism and she cared about other people. And eventually she made such an impact on the United States that President Roosevelt delayed entering World War II for longer than he actually did in our reality. 
And in that time, the Germans developed the atomic bomb, so they won. So the story plays out similarly, but slightly different than it does in the televised version. And in the end, Spock allows Edith Keeler to be killed. Whereas in the first go-round, this drug-dealing crew member had saved Keeler from being hit by a car and dying. There are a lot more differences than that. But the one that I'm focused on is that at the end of the episode, Kirk and Spock are having their conversation, and Kirk is heartbroken because he fell in love with Edith Keeler, and then Spock stopped him from saving her life, and she died. In the televised version, it's McCoy who's going to save Edith Keeler, and Kirk chooses to stop him, even though he loves her. And in the Ellison version, Spock says, I don't understand why this crewman would have saved Edith Keeler. And Kirk tries to explain that good people can do bad things sometimes, but also bad people can do good things sometimes. And Spock finds it illogical. But there it is. I'm, I'm not a fan of Ellison, as you may have gleaned from what I've said. But that is a very striking comment on humanity. And uh, as good as City on the Edge of Forever is, it, it could have used a couple more bits like that in it. You know, that, that, that's a really powerful line. I'm not going to argue which version is better. Ellison's was ultimately unfilmable. Budgetarily, it would have cost what three episodes of Star Trek cost. So that was part of it. But, you know, Ellison wasn't just upset that they changed things. He was upset that they didn't let him change things. If they had problems, he wanted to fix them. Roddenberry had promised him that it would be a writer's show and that he would be hands-off. And then uh, Ellison felt like Roddenberry had lied to him. And again, he spent the rest of Roddenberry's life calling him a fraud and a liar and a bucket of crap, among other people. Anybody who crossed Ellison's path was branded in this way. He was a bad man who was nevertheless capable of really good art. <laughs> that's just my opinion. I'm sorry if that's inappropriate to have said that. Kind of goes back to the, uh, the episode I did with hero worship, where I was talking about writers or actors or directors who are morally questionable, who have turned out to be bad people. And what does it say about the art? What if that art inspires you? to do good. There are very few people who are entirely bad. I'm thinking of one right now, and if you know me, you know who I'm thinking of. But there are also very few people that are entirely good. It's a process. Maybe by the time you reach old age, 
you have done more good than bad. If so, congratulations. I would like to think that in all of these episodes of my podcast, there have been more good episodes than bad. And I continue to work on it and struggle, especially in my own writing, to write more stories that are good and fewer that are bad. But I guarantee you that unless I hit a deer on this drive home, there will be more stories that are not so good in the future. I think it's more important that I finish a story than that I only write good ones. Thank you for listening once again to my podcast. Please subscribe. Is that what you do? No, that's YouTube. Please go over to Patreon and support me if you don't already. And if you have in the past and it has lapsed, the door is open. I would love for you to come back. I think I'll throw that other Edith Nesbitt story that I recorded today up just for them. Because it was so short, it won't take me long to edit. And um, there will be more such stories. Who, who knows if I will do more Nesbits in the future. But I will definitely do more stories in the future. I hope you liked my performance. I hope you liked my episode. And I hope that there is more good than bad in your world. Good night. This podcast has been produced under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives 3.0 license, granting you full access to download, share the file, listen, and delete the bugger. But you can't claim the files as your own or try to make money off them. No doubt you noticed the fine music in this episode by one Kevin McLeod of the website Incompetech.com who released it under a Creative Commons license. I only wish he had a podcast so I could be listening to that instead. What is that? Oh, that's cool. Oh, gosh. So I passed a uh, um, memorial? What do you call those? Uh, where, where there's When there's been an accident and someone has died, people will put up a marker, will put up a... a, a, a some kind of, of memorial. And this one actually had some of those solar lights that, that are so cheap you can get them at the dollar store now. But they'd put those there and it drew my attention. I guess this is the latest I've been at the cabin in a while because I could see them lit up as I approached and I didn't know what they symbolized, what they were. I thought, oh no, you know, somebody's flashlight or worse is coming up. But what it was was a little memorial and it had a mylar balloon in the shape of a five on it. And I wondered if the accident was five years ago or worse.
if the person in the accident had been five years old. And, you know, maybe it wasn't an accident. Maybe it was just a marker for somebody who passed from sickness, et cetera, et cetera. I am going to cut this bit out, but I think it would work in this episode because of the themes of the episode. But now I have to remember where I was when I was distracted by that little five and the lights. Give me a second. The corpse in its grave clothes. Dead. 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 <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> I thought that was it. 